Good morning to everyone. In Mark chapter 9, verse 14, to chapter 10, verse 52, the Lord Jesus gives us eight lessons. Uh, We have looked at the first three of these lessons. Uh, Number one, a lesson on faith. All things are possible. Number two, a lesson on humility, true greatness. Number three, a lesson on temptation, radical surgery. And today we are going to look together at the fourth, a lesson on marriage, one flesh. And so to that end, I invite you, encourage you to follow along as I read the first 12 verses of Mark 10. And he left there. And went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Uh, We're going to approach these verses in a very simple fashion. Uh, We can think in terms of two parts, two sections, two chapters. Uh, Part A, explanation. We need to make sense of what the Lord Jesus is saying here. And then part B, following on the explanation, application. How does this apply to us uh, today? And so we begin with part A. Uh, the first section, uh, explanation, and the, our explanation of these verses, our understanding of these verses, must begin with the question that the Pharisees posed to the Lord Jesus in verse 2. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So why are they asking this question? They are testing him. How are they testing him? Uh, we don't know for certain. Uh, One very plausible possibility is this. Uh, They're trying to make him take a stand like John the Baptist took a stand. You remember John the Baptist preached, spoke out against Herod, who married Herodias, his his half-niece. And John the Baptist made it very clear. He announced it unequivocally. He did not mix words. It is not lawful for you to have her. And it cost him his head. And perhaps these Pharisees are thinking, well, if we can get the Lord Jesus to make a stand on this, if we can get him to speak out against Herod, maybe he will suffer the same fate. We don't know for certain. But certainly uh, they, they, they are driven in this question, not because they're inquisitive, not because they're searching for truth, but because they are looking to test the Lord Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Christ's response is fourfold, uh, meaning there are four parts his answer. And I think this will help us as we go through these parts, one, two, three, four. Uh, The first three he actually directs to the Pharisees. 
publicly. He saves the fourth for his disciples privately. They've asked the question. He's not going to skirt around it. He's not going to avoid it. He's not going to downplay it. He is going to be forthright. He is going to respond. And he does so in four parts. And so the first part, Jesus clarifies the intent behind Moses' command. That's the first part of his answer. He clarifies the intent behind Moses' command. So he answers their question with a question. Verse 3, he answered them. What did Moses command you? What's he referring to? He's referring to the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 24, the first four verses. They responded, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So in the first part of his answer, basically what he is doing is demolishing the Pharisees' position. You see, before he can answer the question, before he can get to the heart of the matter, before he can expound and declare Uh, What he believes, rooted in God's word, and as the incarnate word of God, he must tear down what they believe. What they believe is based on a twisted interpretation of Moses' command in Deuteronomy 24. And based on Moses' command in Deuteronomy 24, they believed, look, a man can divorce his wife for whatever, just about whatever reason he likes, as long as he gives her a certificate of divorce. Uh, that isn't what Moses taught. Moses gave an injunction back there in Deuteronomy 24. And the reason he gave the injunction is given to us right there in verse 5. The Lord Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, Deuteronomy 24 doesn't answer the question. Deuteronomy 24 doesn't shed any light on the question. Deuteronomy 24 does not give us the revelation of God concerning the feasibility of a man divorcing his wife and marrying another. No, Deuteronomy 24, that piece of legislation was given because of your sin. It was given because a problem had spiraled out of control. It was given because of the vulnerability of women who were being divorced by their husbands. It was given to bring a measure of control to a situation that had spawned and spiraled out of control. It was given because of the hardness of your heart. So he tears it down. That's a text they like to run to. And based on that text, they believe they could divorce their wife for just about any reason as long as they gave her a certificate of divorce. The Lord Jesus, in a word, says, nonsense. That's not why that text was given. That's not why that commandment is there. That commandment was given as a temporary injunction to deal with a problem that was out of control and to protect the vulnerability of women. That's part one. Part two. Jesus clarifies the intent behind God's design. And so having torn down their twisted interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, and having established the fact that Deuteronomy 24 does not answer the question for us, in the second part, he takes them to the only place in Scripture that does deal with this question, this issue. He takes them to the only place in God's Word where we do find God's will revealed to us. Two passages of Scripture both back in the book of Genesis, both pertaining to the creation account, the first Genesis 1.27, the second Genesis 2.24, and listen for them in his response as he gives it now beginning in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, so I'm taking you all the way back to the beginning, I'm taking you all the way back to creation, I am, in a word, taking you all the way back to God's original design. God made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. Not only that, verse 7, therefore, and here's Genesis 2, 24, 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's the answer to your question. Not your misinterpretation and misapplication of Moses' command. No, 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 no. Let's go right back to the start where everything began. Let's go right back to first founding principles back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the creation narrative, and understand these three things. Number one, marriage is exclusive. It is between one man and one woman. Number two, marriage is permanent. A man holds fast to his wife. And number three, marriage is covenantal. A man and a woman become one flesh. It is an intimate, personal, spiritual, and physical union. That's the second part of his answer. He clarifies the intent behind God's design. The third part of the answer, Christ's answer, brings us to verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So think, as it follows on to their question, right back in verse 2. They came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? First things first, understand this. We're not going to Deuteronomy 24. You've misunderstood it. You've twisted it. You've misapplied it. No, that was a temporary injunction given to deal with temporary circumstances and situations in which divorce was rampant and women were being preyed upon in that context. Can't go there. Number two, here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to Genesis 1. We're going to go to Genesis 2. We're going to go right back to the beginning, and we're going to understand God's original design. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is permanent. Marriage is covenantal. Here's my answer to your question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 9, no. What therefore God has joined together? Let not man separate. Then there's a fourth part to his answer. The Pharisees recede into the background. Jesus is alone now with his disciples in a house. Verse 10, They ask him again about this matter. And here Jesus, rather emphatically, emphasizes the sinfulness of divorce. What does he say beginning in verse 11? He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In other words, uh, this this is serious. This is grave. Begs the question as to why. Uh, Why is this so serious in the eyes of the Lord Jesus? Why does he equate uh, divorce and remarriage in the context he's envisioning here in Mark 10? Why does he equate it with adultery? And why does he speak so emphatically, so clearly, so painfully uh, regarding this subject? I think the answer is very simple, and Paul gives us the answer in Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to go there, but let me sum it up in a statement. The statement is this. Marriage illustrates the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the reason why. That's the why the Lord Jesus takes this so seriously. That's why Scripture as a whole takes this subject so seriously. Uh, marriage illustrates the relationship between Christ and the church. We often get it wrong. We often think the relationship between Christ and the church illustrates marriage. That's not Paul's intent, actually, in Ephesians chapter 5. His intent is to demonstrate that it is marriage that illustrates the relationship between Christ and the church. In other words, that is to say, and let's be very clear on this, God Almighty has embedded the gospel in the created order. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5. Paul is basically saying in Ephesians 5, God has embedded the gospel in marriage because marriage serves this overarching purpose, 
to illustrate, to serve as a visual aid as to the relationship between Christ and the church. He has embedded right from the beginning, right from the dawning of time, all the way back to the original creation, God in his infinite wisdom embedded in the created order, embedded in marriage, in the gospel. Uh, that means, well, that means a lot of things. Uh, let me share a couple with you. Uh, it means that um, when biblical marriage is uh, marred, the gospel is what? Marred. When biblical manhood is corrupted, the gospel is corrupted. When uh, biblical womanhood is corrupted, so too the gospel is it is corrupted. The gospel is declared firstly, first and foremost in the divinely ordained institution of marriage whereby we have a living, breathing, vivid portrayal of the very relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Um, I was listening well, it was months ago, I believe it was Father's Day, Brian arranged for us to give out the, the Russell Moore CD. Wasn't it Father's Day, Brian? I think it was. And I remember listening to it at the time, and there was an illustration or just a, something he pointed to on that CD which caught my attention. So I went back this past week just to listen to it again and jog my memory as to what it was. And, and, and Russell Moore on that, that CD, Mars and Venus is the name of the sermon, isn't it? Something like that, or Venus and Mars. Something fascinating like that. He... Um, it gives this illustration of, uh, of Pat Robertson, a popular preacher today in some circles. Pat Robertson was, was asked in his talk, you know, call-in show. People could ask questions. And a man, uh, I believe in his 60s, 70s, called in to uh, ask Pat Robertson a question. And the question was this. Um, my wife has Alzheimer's, and she doesn't even know me anymore. I've developed a friendship with another woman. Can I divorce my wife? And marry this other woman. Pat Robertson's response was, you're free to divorce and marry another. You are free to divorce and marry another. Why? Well, for Pat Robertson and for most people today, because God's greatest desire is for you to be happy, right? That's how we tick. What makes me happy? It's the only question I'm concerned about. Right now, this moment, what makes me happy? And that's what I will act upon. Sadly, that is seeped into and has a death hold on evangelicalism today. What makes me happy? That's all I'm concerned about. Not what's God's will. Not what is God's design. What do I feel at this moment? What makes me happy? And so based on that premise, he answered that question in the affirmative. You are free to divorce and marry another. Friend, I want us to understand those words. You are free to divorce and marry another. They are not merely unethical. Uh, They are not merely unbiblical. They are diabolical because they are an open repudiation of the gospel. Do we understand that? You are free to divorce and marry another. That makes you happy. Um, That is an open repudiation of the gospel. The Lord Jesus takes it most seriously in this text. The Apostle Paul takes it most seriously. The entire tenor of scripture is very clear. God has embedded in creation. He has embedded in marriage um, the gospel. 
I, I worry about that myself as a man, as a husband, as a pastor. I worry about that because you know what it means for me personally? It means my greatest sermon aren't the sermons I preach here Sunday by Sunday. Do you realize that? I'm not sure I always realize it. My greatest sermon is my marriage. It means I can go down to the Glenrose Square and preach the gospel all I like. I can hand out a million tracts. I can go door to door. But the most fundamental, basic question when it comes to the proclamation as a Christian is this. Uh, Is my marriage a living portrayal and proclamation of the gospel? Marriage is designed of God, embedded in marriage, an illustration of the very relationship between Christ and the church. That's an explanation of these verses. Application. Application. I want to speak to five groups of people. There is some overlap, granted, but uh, identify five groups of people and really develop... um, some thoughts to the, to the fifth group. But, so what we're doing is we, we understand, okay, we understand these verses and uh, we're confronted with the will of God. This is God's revelation. And so the question is now is, so what? Um, how does this apply? What is its relevance? So let me try to explain this and un- unpack it by, by applying, applying it to five groups of people. First group of people, let me describe them as follows. Um, they've been abandoned. All right, and that may apply very well to some here right now. And let me mention at the outset, my, my message to each of these five groups of, of people is precisely the same. I lack imagination. Precisely the same. Uh, my admonition is this. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. What do we have to say to that man, that woman here this day or anywhere who has been abandoned? You see, the Lord Jesus does envision a scenario in which that might very well happen. He doesn't allude to it here in Mark 10, but he does in a parallel account in Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, he does give us a situation in which divorce is permissible. Uh, in the case of adultery, fornication, there is such a thing as an innocent party. That, that is not to say, that is not to say that, it, that in a case, in a situation of adultery, divorce is, um, is the first thing to do. Where there is, where there is repentance... Praise God, there is restoration. Where there is repentance, there is reconciliation. Where there is repentance by God's grace, there is healing and the strengthening of a marriage. And so while divorce might be permissible, it is always lamentable, even in that situation. But there are contexts in which there is no repentance. There is context in which a man or a woman might just walk away from a marriage. Uh, Christ does envision that. He does recognize that. And he does declare one party innocent, that sort of abandonment. My message is very simple to you. It is look to the cross. There you will see a Savior who has forgiven you more than you can imagine, thereby enabling you to forgive. And there you will see a Savior who knows what it means to be betrayed and who knows what it means to be Abandoned. Abandoned. Second group of people I think we need to speak to are as follows. Um, They have done what God forbids and can't go back. Just can't go back. Can't turn back the clock. But they have repented. Um, They have acknowledged it as sin. It was wrong. It was a sin. 
uh, can't go, we can't turn back the clock. We can't go back. We can't change it. And I have repent. I have repented. My message to you is the same. Look to, look to the cross. Uh, that sin is what nailed the Lord Jesus to the cross. And understand, friend, Christian, I'm speaking to Christians, understand that uh, in Christ, I used this language in Sunday school this morning, let me use it again, in Christ you have been stripped naked. In Christ you have been nailed to the cross. In Christ you have suffered hell. In Christ you have been buried. You know where I'm going with this? In Christ you have risen again. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That applies to those who have committed this sin. That applies to those Christians who have fallen into adultery. It applies to those who have cheated on their taxes. It applies to that woman who has had an abortion. It applies to those who have cheated, lied, lusted, maligned. It applies to all of us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Third group of people I want to speak to are as follows. They've done what God forbids, and they can't go back. But they have never repented. Well, you need to look afresh at the cross. It is Calvary's cross that breaks our hearts for sin. And you need to acknowledge and confess that the divorce, the remarriage, they were wrong. You confess it as sin, and you take refuge in the shadow of the cross. And understand that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me speak to a fourth group of people. They are in the process of doing what God forbids. They are in the process of doing what God forbids. You too must look to Calvary, the cross, and must understand that God's saving love in Christ compels us to obey. It compels us to obey. The terms of the discipleship, we struggle with this, I struggle with this. And let's be very open about it. Friend, Christian, the terms of discipleship are not, how does this make me feel? The terms of discipleship are not what pleases me. The terms of discipleship are not, what do I think about this or feel about this? The Lord Jesus has given us the terms of discipleship, and they are these. You deny yourself, and you pick up your cross, and you follow me. That is not legalism. That is grace in action. That is brokenness before Calvary's cross. As we come in our sin and our filthiness, and we hear that cry, there is no condemnation for those who are one with Christ Jesus. And if we have believed and confessed of our sin, willingly we come now to our king. And we prostrate ourselves before our king. And our greatest desire is your will be done. And it is in the shadow of Calvary's cross that God's saving love in Christ compels us to obey him. I've heard it before. And unfortunately, things being as they are, undoubtedly I will hear it many times again. Oh, but Stephen, you, you don't realize it's beyond hope. It, it, it is beyond restoration. This situation has spiraled to such a degree 
that there is no hope. Christian, the foundation of the Christian faith is what? God raised a dead man. He can heal your marriage. God, by his almighty power, has raised a man from the dead and exalted him at his right hand in majesty. His power is incomparable. And I submit to you, the only obstacle to a restored marriage is pride. That is it. The only obstacle to a restored marriage, the only obstacle to a God-glorifying marriage, the only obstacle to a marriage that illustrates the relationship between Christ and the church is pride. You need to go back to Calvary's cross and mortify your pride. And there we are broken and left in poverty of spirit. And our desire is your will be done, not mine. And so if you are in the process of doing what God forbids, I urge you and plead with you yet again, you get back to the gospel and seek to understand afresh and anew what God's saving grace is all about. The fifth group I want to speak to, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of the time, those who are married, which just about all of us, or contemplating marriage. Those who are married or contemplating marriage. And my word of encouragement, my word of exhortation is exactly the same as it was to these first four groups. Uh, Look to the cross. Why? Because it is the cross that changes the way we relate to people. The cross at its foundation, at at its root, changes the way we relate to people, including the marriage relationship. There was a young woman 400 years ago. Her name was Margaret Charlton. And against her wishes, she uh, attended a church one Sunday morning. Someone dragged her there, kicking and screaming. And a young man by the name of Richard Baxter was preaching, and she wasn't impressed. Uh, She thought he was too stuffy and too strict. But something drew her back Sunday after Sunday, and he was in the midst of preaching a series on the doctrine of conversion. And God broke her for her sin, uh, drew her to Calvary's cross, and wonderfully, miraculously converted her. And she and Richard Baxter were married just a few weeks a few weeks after that. Richard Baxter speaks a great deal. He, he was a, a voluminous writer. And he speaks a great deal of marriage. And he always describes his marriage in the most glowing terms. Quite compelling. Quite, I don't know if he's a romantic or what. And he will often use the word, he often uses the word wonderful. She was a wonderful woman. And always, often speaks of a wonderful marriage. And as I've thumbed through his writings and read through his writings over the years, I have found instructions upon instructions that Richard Baxter has given for keeping and maintaining love in marriage. And so with this this basic premise of looking to the cross, I want to speak, I think it obliges us to speak this morning to all of us who are married, to all of us who are contemplating marriage, and say a word of what it means of what it looks like to maintain love in marriage. Now, our faithful clicker at the back, Kristen, is going to help us here because I'm going to use the, uh, the screen behind us yet again. And I'm going to share with you nine instructions. And uh, he has many more. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of instructions that he has. I've selected nine of my, my favorite instructions for maintaining, keeping love in marriage. 
The first three are actually spoken to those considering marriage. But don't tune out. These are relevant, applicable for all of us. And I, and I, and I pray will be extremely beneficial. So number one, here is uh, the first instruction for maintaining love in marriage. Number one, says Richard Baxter, choose a wife who is truly amiable. Strange word, amiable. We don't use it that much today. What does he mean? He simply means this. Uh, young men. You know who you are. When it comes to choosing a wife, you are to look for a friend. You are to look for a companion. Let me put it in slightly different terms. This is going to seem shocking at first, but bear with me. Friend, young man, or maybe middle-aged man, when it comes to finding a spouse, when it comes to finding a wife, you are looking for a 60-year-old, not a 20-year-old. Do you get it? Most of us don't. You are looking for a 60-year-old, not a 20-year-old. In other words, you are looking for someone who will still be your best friend when you're both 60. Companionship, friendship is the priority, says Richard Baxter. Our wives must be our best friends, and we must approach the institution of marriage We must approach the search for a wife, the search for a husband. This applies to the young ladies here present as well. Do not think as our society thinks. It's bankrupt. It's proven bankrupt. Just look at the institution of marriage in our society and what our society values, what our society champions, and what our society celebrates. No. You are looking for companionship, and you are looking for friendship. You look for a 60-year-old not a 20-year-old. Is that making sense now? If not, you speak with me afterward. Number two, do not marry until you are sure you can love. Do not marry until you are sure you can love. In other words, do not marry until you are sure what love is. Very applicable in our day and age in which love is equated with lust and lust is equated with love. Uh, Love today is defined in terms of how does she, how does this moment, how does this experience make me feel? So I love chocolate because it tastes good. I love skiing because of the rush. I love cashmere because of the feel. I love so-and-so because of what they stimulate in me. I love so-and-so because of how they make me feel. I love so-and-so because of the pleasure I experience. Friend, that isn't biblical love. Uh, That isn't Christian love. That isn't marital love. That isn't God-honoring love. Do not fall into the trap in which our society has fallen into and most, the vast majority, have followed suit within the church, equating and confusing lust for love because lust disappears in six months. And if we're defining love on the basis of of lust, how does this make me feel at this very moment? What pleasure does this bring me at this very moment? Then we will fall in and out of love and in and out of love and in and out of love. As the sun goes up and the sun goes down, daily it will change. As we're prey to our feelings and the ebbs and flows of our emotions. No, friend, do not marry until you are sure you can love. 
And number three, do not be too hasty, but recognize her faults beforehand. Steady on, sisters, steady. I'll explain this. Do not be too hasty, but recognize her faults beforehand. I've heard it many times, and I choke on it every time I hear it. Uh, The number of people who say, well, I didn't really know her. I didn't really know him until after we were married. I didn't know she was going to be like that. I didn't know he was going to be like that. Yes, you did. You were just too blind to acknowledge it. Do not be too hasty, but recognize her faults beforehand. Do not allow that adolescent love that experience of feeling to overwhelm and blind us to the reality that we are marrying a sinner. She is a sinner, friend. He is a sinner. And we must enter marriage with eyes wide open, understanding and recognizing that we are sinners saved by grace. I can remember my my father and mother having a discussion. I was just a little boy and... uh, I wasn't supposed to be hearing this discussion, but I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be, and I heard it. And uh, my father was sharing with my mother, and I probably shouldn't be sharing it with you now, but here it is. My father and mother were having a discussion uh, concerning a young couple that my father was going to be marrying. And this young man had some problems. He had some issues. And so he was doing the premarital class, and he, my dad just rhymed off the issues. Uh, spoke to this young lady, how are you going to deal with this? Uh, what about that? What about this? And my father was flabbergasted as he related this to my mother because the response was what? They just kind of cuddled together on the couch and their answer was what? Oh, love will conquer it all. No, it won't. Do not be too hasty. We go into marriage with eyes wide open and we realize, maybe to our surprise, she is as much a sinner as I am. He is as much a sinner as I am. Number four. Remember, remember that justice commands you to love her until death. Justice commands you to love her until death. When Allison and I were married, uh, June 29th, a long time ago, uh, we stood before the pastor, the minister, and we uh, uttered our vows. I didn't really get it at the time. I didn't really understand the vows at the time. Uh, For me, that vow was a declaration of my present love for Allison. It wasn't. Do you know what I was vowing before God and church and family? I was not vowing, declaring my present love for Allison. I was vowing my future love for Allison, no matter what. And I was calling Almighty God to be my witness. And I was invoking a curse for breaking that vow in God's sight. Do do, do we grasp that? Our vows, gentlemen, brothers, sisters, our vows were not a declaration of present love. Here's how I feel at this very moment. Three months from now, I can't. There's no guarantees. It was not a vow, a declaration of present love. It was a vow, a declaration, a commitment to future love, no matter what. Remember, justice commands you to love her until death. Number five, remember that you are under God's command to love your wife. 
As the Apostle Paul, inspired of God, says that we are, he commands us to love our wives as Christ loved uh, the church. Interesting that. We are commanded to love our wives. Think it through. We can't command emotion. Can we? We command what? Actions. It is a command. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Only actions can be commanded. And so the prevalency today that we see of so many of falling in and falling out of love, as defining love strictly in terms of a warm, fuzzy feeling, and what does this person, what does this individual do for me right now? It is a fallacy. It is a false perception, conception, which is so prevalent in our society today. That young man is married to that young woman. Five years in, he wakes up one morning, he rolls over, he looks at her. I don't feel the same anymore. I guess I'm out of love. And I need to be true to my feelings. And hey, all God is really concerned about is my happiness anyway. And so off I go looking for love. Friend, biblical love is far more robust than that. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. It is a commandment. Brothers, do you know what headship is all about? This this is painful for me to say and uh, probably painful for some of us to hear. Headship is not a question of who rules. Let me repeat that. Headship is not a question of who rules. Headship is a question of who dies. That is biblical headship. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He poured out his life on behalf of the church. And guess what, friend? When the Lord Jesus poured out his life on behalf of the church, he wasn't feeling particularly warm and fuzzy about us. There was nothing desirable about us. There was nothing pleasing to the eye. There was nothing thrilling about us. The Lord Jesus poured out his love. It was an action whereby he gave himself for his bride. You see, headship, so many of us think it is. It's all about ruling. Who gets to call the shots? It isn't. Headship, the issue of headship is not who gets to rule. The issue of headship is who gets to die. I guarantee it. That kind of biblical love spawns the warm and fuzzy feeling, not the other way around. It is that kind of biblical love. It is that kind of biblical, robust self-sacrifice. It is that kind of mentality when we are other-centered as men, that kind of love which births and spawns the feelings. The feelings must be embedded in true biblical love. Here again, this admonition. Remember that you are under God's command to love your wife. Number six, remember that you are one flesh. And so Paul tells us in, Romans chapter, in, in his epistle to Ephesians chapter 5 that uh, no one hates his own flesh. No one hates his own body, but he nourishes and he cherishes it. And so we are to love our wives as our own bodies. We are to love our wives as our own flesh. Well, no one ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes and cherishes it. 
And so is there anything praiseworthy about showering in the morning? No. Is there anything praiseworthy about eating three healthy meals a day? No. Is there anything praiseworthy about exercising and taking care of yourself? No. There is nothing praiseworthy about loving our wives. It should come as naturally to us as all these other things. Why? Because they are our flesh. They are our bodies. We are one with them. And therefore we cherish them. Number seven, consider your own faults. How's Kristen doing with the clicking? Pretty good. Number seven, consider your own faults and how much your wife must bear with you. Consider your own faults and how much your wife must bear with you. When we do that, it cultivates sympathy. Sympathy is from the Latin, two words, I think from the Latin, sympathos, with compassion, with suffering. And so it stirs in us sympathy when we consider our own faults, when we consider our own weaknesses, our own sinfulness, and what our wives have to put up with in us creates a tenderness on our part. It creates brokenness on our part. It drives us again to Calvary's cross to humble ourselves before Christ. It drives us to our knees in prayer when we consider our own faults and how much our wives must bear with us. And number eight, only two more. Overcome her with love. Love will cause love as fire kindles fire. Richard Baxter adds, a good husband is the best means to make a good and loving wife. A good husband is the best means for making a good and godly wife. Now, this comes to mind because uh, this past week, uh, Allison was uh, communicating with uh, a friend of ours, an old friend of ours back in Portugal, a young lady whom we knew quite well years ago. And we were asking her about her relatives, her siblings, and her parents, and uh, her spouse's um, grand- grandparents, uh, Posses e Teresa, who we knew quite well years ago. He was an elder in this church I used to preach at sometimes, and a godly, beautiful, elderly couple. And uh, I remember years ago, uh, them sharing their testimony with us. Uh, Posses was saved when he was in his 40s, converted, just wonderfully, miraculously, tr- tremendously out of Roman Catholicism in a very dark background. Teresa resented him for it. And for the next 17 years, oh, she gave him a hard time. For the next 17 years, she hounded him. For the next 17 years, she ridiculed him. For the next 17 years, she belittled him. For the next 17 years, she made his life a misery. He won her. He won her after 17 years. This is what the Spirit of God used. He won her by her, his love. His self-sacrificial love whereby day after day, month after month, year after year, in the face of open hostility and contempt, he laid down his life for her. And after 17 years, he won her. Well, friend, this applies to, to, to sisters, not just to brothers. Overcome your spouse with love. Love will cause love as fire kindles fire. And now number nine. Give her, give her an example of a prudent, humble, loving, meek, self-denying, patient, harmless, holy, heavenly life. 
set an example. Be an example. Mirror the Lord Jesus Christ. I give you these nine. These nine ooze biblical wisdom. They're all rooted and embedded in Paul's admonitions and commands in Ephesians chapter 5. Sound biblical instructions for cultivating and strengthening and maintaining love in marriage. Now let me draw, let me draw as we, as we bring this to a close, let me draw, direct your minds back to a comment I made earlier, and, and it was this, that according to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, we're speaking, of course, of the latter half of that chapter, what he says in that chapter, according to what he says in that chapter, God has embedded um, the gospel in the created order. God has embedded the gospel in marriage. What precisely do we see of the gospel? What precisely do we see of the relationship between Christ and his church, his bride, in marriage? Three things. These all come out of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The first is this. According to the creation narrative, Eve is taken out of Adam. She is flesh of his flesh, bones of his bones. Number two, according to the creation narrative, Eve is brought to Adam, and they become one flesh. And number three, according to the creation narrative, Eve completes Adam. And before Eve, there was not a helper found suitable for Adam. He now has what he is suited for Eve, and she completes him. There we have the precise relationship between Christ and the church. Eve was taken out of Adam's side. The church, the bride of Christ, is taken out of Christ's side. The purchasing price of this bride, the purchasing price of the church is the blood and water which flows from his side as he is suspended on Calvary's cross between heaven and earth. As Eve is then brought to Adam, And they're brought together in a physical, spiritual, intimate union, thereby becoming one flesh. So too the church, given to Christ in eternity, are brought by the Holy Spirit to Christ, whereby they are made one with him through the Holy Spirit, constituting his mystical body. And just as Eve completes Adam, so too the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Not that there is anything lacking in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but Jesus Christ as the mediator, the one mediator between God and man, is incomplete without his bride. We complete him. We are his fullness. Now, I am emphasizing this. Why? Because we have the Lord's Supper before us. And all of that is depicted in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of our union with Christ by covenant, whereby the Father has given us to him in eternity for our redemption. We're reminded of the fact that we are one with the Lord Jesus by nature. He has taken our humanity to himself. And we are reminded that we are now part of a mystical union with the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of his Holy Spirit. All of that wonderfully depicted, illustrated, declared, in the emblems before us. And so I ask you now just to pause, bow your heads as we
Seek Lord, the Lord's blessing upon what we've heard this morning, and as we seek his blessing upon, upon this supper. Our Heavenly Father, we do bow our heads now before you. We again express our gratitude, our heartfelt thanks for your word, and pray for illumination, and pray for a softening of our hearts to receive and to apply it and to live by it. We praise you for the Lord Jesus our prophet, our priest, our king. We praise you because he is our spouse, our head. He has taken us to himself, uniting us with him by the Holy Spirit. And from that union flows every spiritual blessing and benefit and privilege. And so we do indeed declare his greatness and his goodness this day. And as we partake of these emblems now, the bread and of the cup, and as we're reminded of our union with him, and as we're reminded of this covenant sealed in his blood, Again, we offer up our thanksgiving. We acknowledge our unworthiness, our unworthiness in the light of your holiness, our smallness in the light of your greatness. And yet the fact that we are made acceptable in your sight by our spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we partake together, may we celebrate. As we participate, may you point us heavenward. As we partake together, may you remind us of the Lord Jesus and who he is and all that he has done on our behalf. We seek it from you now in his most precious and worthy name. Amen.